This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and with me as always is my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. What's going on? Uh, I'm doing good, though two weeks is just a very, very long time right now. So in this episode, we'll be moving into a new series. We just finally caught up with all the stuff that happened while we were in the MCU. <laughs> and now we are moving into... Uh, the Bourne series with 2002's The Bourne Identity, um, one of those defining movie franchises of the 21st century. Uh, but before we talk about that, I want uh, we have to kind of make an announcement, uh, kind of a sad announcement. Uh, we're going to be changing up uh, the scheduling of the show a little bit. Up till now, we've been, well, f- for the last, this, this started in what, 20s? I guess it started in late, either late 2016, early 2017. And we've been doing weekly since then, or mostly weekly, may, we may have skipped a week or two here or there, uh, but been doing pretty steady uh, for the last you know three four years. Uh, but now our lives are getting kind of busy, and so we're going to have to move this from a weekly show to a biweekly show, which honestly has me bo- has me very sad. But also, these last two weeks were kind of nice and relaxed. So <laughs> there's that. So I'll, I'll come clean and say I was I was the one who pitched it, and I had a tinge of guilt. Because I just, I was like, you know, I'm still about to have to go back to work, which means I'm going to be getting home later. And I forgot everything. Uh, You know, I've got potentially another podcast thing. Maybe we'll see what happens. I just like, just, just life in general. Are you cheating on me? Who knows? (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) But just life in general, kind of like, I don't know, feeling a little hectic. Um. and so I was like, I, I asked, I was like, is it, would you be cool with maybe ju- just doing uh, a bi-weekly podcast? Or is it bi-monthly? Uh, well, both. Hang on, no. Bi-weekly is every, every other week, right? Yeah, but I thought bi was half, because like bi-annually is something that happens twice a year. So bi-weekly would be something twice a week, right? What? Okay, regardless. Okay. We're doing it every other week. <laughs> right? This is what I pitched. And I was like, My I just, whole life is a lie. What does this word mean? I know. Um, every... Every two weeks or twice a week. What? It can be both. Okay. That's just dumb. Oh, yeah. Occurring every two weeks or twice a week. All right. Whatever. <laughs> well, words mean nothing anymore. Welcome to the English language. Anyways. Uh, so it's just getting crazy. So I, I told him, I was like, yeah, let's just do this. But then at the like literally within the same week. I was, me and friends were like, oh, let's put together a horror group and try to watch as many move, like scary movies as we can. So right as I'm asking you, like, ah, I just, I'm getting pressed for time. <laughs> I get like eight scary movies in in two weeks, but I'm not going to be able to watch with that, that level of regularity coming up anyways. So just enjo- enjoying the time I have right now. Yeah, but uh, so we're just going to keep going, you know. It's going to be every other week, but uh, hopefully this will continue for a long time. And uh, maybe, since it'll be a little longer in between, uh, I might finally have to step up and learn editing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, m- maybe once movies start coming out again, I might might start doing like a, a, a bi-weekly like reviews of you know, mini-sodes on new films or something. No promises, but uh, that might happen. That'd be cool. If I see a movie worth talking about. 
Um, yeah, so before we, uh, we're going to talk about The Born Identity, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment to head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and review. It would be very helpful. And also subscribe while you're at it. Uh, and also like us on Facebook to keep, to keep up to date with all the latest episodes and to give feedback that can be read on the show. Uh, and speaking of said feedback, I asked our listeners what they thought of The Born Identity. Drew Dodgen said, It's been a long time since I last went through The Born movies, but I do remember enjoying them. This was the movie that made Matt Damon a recognizable name for me. Hillary said, I love this franchise. Uh, Byron said, a well-made and acted spy thriller. Matt Damon brings gravitas to the role and manages manages to make it his own. My only complaint is that that the climax is a bit weak and feels like it's over before it really begins. Uh, Alan said, some of the best car chase footage ever shot. My only complaint was the totally unrealistic conclusion of the staircase fight at the end. Only the John Wick series has topped the fight choreography for intensity and masterful editing. I never grow tired of watching this franchise. Films like this can easily become cheesy parodies of themselves and quickly become dated. Born holds up. And then Mike at Jarek on Twitter said, Excellent series of movies uh, with gold stars for the f- to the first three, which tell a concise, compact, and riveting story. Stunt work editing are a matter of taste, but they kind of set the bar for movies that followed for good or bad. Then diving into the behind-the-scenes story of this film... Um, so the novel, The Born Identity, was published in 1980 by Robert Ludlum. Um, Ludlum, Ludlum himself only wrote three Born novels, Identity, The Born Supremacy in 18, uh, 1986, and Ultimatum in 1990. However, after the, su- the success of the films in 2004, Eric von uh, Lustaber, Lustbaber, Lustbaber, Lustaber, something. <laughs> it's a name. Uh, he picked up the series and has since written 11 more novels since uh, 2004. There was an adaptation of The Born Identity in 1988. It was a two-part TV movie starring Richard Chamberlain. I tried to get a hold, a hold of it to watch it, but it's very difficult to find. Flashing forward to the late 90s, uh, Doug Lyman, who had long been a fan of the books, uh, was working on his debut Swingers and decided to uh, attempt an adaptation. Um, he spent the next several years acquiring the rights and working on a screenplay with writer Tony Gilroy. Uh, he said a major inspiration uh, in the writing of this film came from his father, Arthur Lyman, who was you know, a lawyer heavily involved in politics. Uh, particularly, he was involved in the uh, investigation for the Iran-Contra scandal. Then the film was set up at Universal, and writer William Blake Harrison was brought on for a rewrite. For the cast, uh, Matt Damon has famously played Jason Bourne. Uh, Lyman actually had a bunch of different actors in mind for the role, um, Originally, it was going to be Brad Pitt, but he had turned the role down to star in Spy Game, which is another movie I actually like a lot. Um, other names that were sought were Russell Crowe. And then some uh, Russell Crowe and Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise at that time, I completely understand. But a couple of names that are just like stick out to me is Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone were both approached as well. Those would have been... That, that had just been the studio. Yeah, because it definitely feels not what Lehman was going for. That movie would have just been, I feel like, fundamental. Okay, we got to figure out, is it Lyman or Lehman? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I pick I one just said and I say it the whole time and then I hear somebody else say it the other way and so I adapt and then I say it that way and then I hear somebody say it the other <laughs> way and so I'm just in a perpetual state of feeling stupid like I'm saying it wrong. So today it's Lehman, tomorrow it might be Lyman. I, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, we'll just be we'll just be fighting there about this go. the whole time. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, regardless, whichever way they went, had they gone with either of those, would have just fundamentally changed this film. I mean, it, you put Schwarzenegger in there; it's it's total recall yeah. again. Uh, he eventually decided on Damon, 
uh, he found that he understood and appreciated uh, the fact that, like, in addition to an action film, it is also very character and plot driven. Um, so he needed somebody, you know, who could actually carry the emotional weight of the film. Um, Damon also really wanted to prove himself uh, potentially as an action star since he wasn't really in a lot of these action heavy films at this point. So he did a lot of his own stunts and uh, went through quite a rigorous routine getting ready for the film. And it's weird looking at his filmography before this. And it is just a lot of little indie movies before now. Like he was, he was a name. Uh, he was definitely a rising star at the time. Yeah. And there's a quote from him where he's talking about, you know, he was, he was working as an actor for 11 years before uh, Goodwill Hunting. And he, he was just, he was talking about how different life was, you know, day to day, he would experience no real discernible change in his life for 11 years as an actor. And then overnight, after all that time, it's like all of a sudden he's a huge star. And so after that, he really got seen, you know, using Saving Private Ryan, Rounders, Dogma, Talented Mr. Ripley and everything. And then I guess the the big, the real big one after that would have been Ocean's Eleven, which kind of created him or, you know, like cemented him as a star and so you can kind you can definitely see why he was also like a bankable name at that point uh for the rest of the cast you have a uh frank potent franca franca potent how do you pronounce her name i'm sorry we're just gonna butcher all the last names this episode as marie kreutz uh chris the wonderful chris cooper as alexander conklin uh, Clive Owen, who I like even more after our um, little our series of minisodes um, as the professor. Uh, Brian Cox, who I always really love as a uh, Ward Abbott. Uh, Adawale Akinoya Ab- Agbaje. You know, that, was, that wasn't bad. I think that I got that 90% right. Uh, maybe. Uh, as Nikwana Wambasi. Uh, Gabriel Mann as Danny Zorn, Julia Stiles as Nikki Parsons. It was weird to me because I, I am kind of culturally aware of the trilogy, and her face is what I think of more so than Franca. So whenever I saw Franca, I was like, "Wait, I don't really remember her." And then she showed up, and I was like, "Hmm, I, her character must return because I picture her when I think of like." female stars stars of the trilogy but we'll see how that unfolds uh orso maria gurini as giancarlo tim dutton as Eamon, nikki naud as castell russell levy as Mannheim, uh vincent franklin as rollins and then we've got some other cameos one i noticed real quick uh walton goggins appears as a treadstone research technician yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of him. And so I was I I know that very unique mouth and forehead. <laughs> this guy is he's he's unmistakable. Now moving into the main production. Um so uh, shortly before shooting, uh, Tony Gilroy went off to write the Russell Crowe film Proof of Life, um, and David Self from such films as Road to Partition and The Wolfman was brought in to uh, to keep working on the script. According to Damon, uh, he did a massive like page one rewrite that turned it into a much more generic action film. Uh, then they had Gilroy come back and brought the script, trying to bring the script back into its uh, more original shape as they were moving into filming. And so filming began in the fall of 2000. It was shot by cinematographer Oliver Wood, 
Um, he's like he's worked on like so many high profile projects with all all kinds of incredible directors. But he also he seems to jump around a bit. He rarely sticks with one particular director um, on multiple projects. And so once filming started, uh, there were just a lot of cl- conflicts and problems um, that would plague the film uh, pretty much for the entirety of its production. Um, so some of it is conflict with the studio where the studio constantly pushing to make it, you know, more of an, more action driven, bigger action, more action scenes with Lyman tr- pushing back and trying to keep it more character driven. There were fights over the, you know, the, the, the farm sequence where they go and uh, go to Marie's uh, stepbrother. Like they wanted to take that out of the film. And also there's the whole issue of Lyman himself as a director. And this is, this is like, this is a thing that has kind of, you know, pe- people have talked about him pretty much the entirety of his career. Is that he's ki- apparently he's kind of a mess on set, where he the sets are absolute chaos. He he, he brings a very indie film uh, sensibility, so he's he's not ne- not really planning things out, just going on to set and figuring out what to shoot on the day. I remember listening to an interview with uh, em- Emily Blunt about Edge of Tomorrow, and she said that every day when they would get on set, he would just take the actors. You know, aside for a couple hours and just talk through what they're gonna sh- they're gonna shoot that day, and you know, and kind of make up a lot of it right then and there, which has to be a nightmare for the studio where they're paying tens of millions of dollars and you have the entire crew on set waiting you know, to be told what to do. You know, Tom Cruise is just off to the right there, he's sitting around waiting. Which I, I think I think that's why Tom Cruise likes it because he include you know, he includes the actors and he's very collaborative and yeah. I'm sure Cruise, who's kind of you know, could probably be a director himself. You know, enjoys being you know being included in that process. Dude, I th- that idea I had for the first time recently of like I kind of wish Tom Cruise directed something. Mm-hmm. I feel like that'd be really cool. Yeah, but it's just, I've read various articles just how insane this production was, where the studio was just constantly trying to you know get on him to you know you know keep you know <laughs> keep on time and under budget. Uh, there were fights that he wanted Lyman wanted to shoot in Paris. The studio wanted to find a cheaper city, and and it. As the stories go, it seemed like every time they had a fight, pretty much always Lyman won and got what he wanted. But just by all reports, it was absolute chaos, and they were very, very unhappy uh, with, his, you know, with with the way he ran a set. And uh, I was reading a, a quote from a Simon Kimberg, who wrote a Mr. and Mrs. Smith for Lyman later on. He termed the way that Lyman ran sets as Lymania. Um, so, and, but also the, the, the um, another reason for all the chaos was that. They, they, as with many big films, they started filming without a script. So you had uh, Tony Gilroy, you know, writing along alongside production and faxing pages and rewrites to the to the set all throughout production. A thing about the way Lyman shoots his films is that the, you know, he he often will, will go go in not knowing entirely what the film is about and just in, you know quote unquote discovering it as part of the process of making it. And what what happens is often the endings of his films won't work, and and he has to do reshoots. Like there are multiple films of his that have had to, had to have their endings rewritten or reshot. The the the, uh, the film Chaos, Chaos Walking, that's you know been in <laughs> post production hell for. Are we even sure that that's a like movie? Two years. Yeah, they had to they had to do massive reshoots. Uh, um, I think uh, Fetty Alvarez came in and helped with that. You know, I th- I'm happy that we have something to take New Mutants' place now that it's a thing. Mm-hmm. I think you know, this happened with you know Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Edge of Tomorrow. Like this is kind of a, a thing that happens with Lyman's films that he he discovers them while filming and then it puts them together in the edit. Okay, I need to be, I know I need to go shoot a new ending. 
Um, so it's just it's, it was crazy, and the studio was not happy with him, and they fired him after this and brought on Paul Greengrass for the for all the sequels. Um, despite this being a pretty decent success, that's something else that really surprised me is because Paul Greengrass, like I had associated both Doug Lehman and Paul Greengrass with the trilogy, but I had kind of assumed that maybe Lehman wrote it and Greengrass directed them all. So whenever it said, like whenever I saw no sign of Greengrass in the first one, I was like, I really know nothing about this trilogy. It'll be interesting to see what it feels like with, without his direction. It was his baby out of the gate, and if he hadn't you know, burned so many bridges, I'm sure he would have continued. For the post-production, it's also not free of its own drama. Um, Carter Burwell was originally hired to to score. Uh, however, he had composed and recorded what Lehman felt was a very traditional score for the film, uh, and he ended up rejecting it. So, uh, and most of the money that they had kind of budgeted towards uh, the film score had already been used. And so he ended up hiring John Powell. uh, And it was originally conceived to be almost completely non-orchestral. That's why it sounds very percussion heavy, guitar heavy, you know, a lot of different electronic sounding uh, moments. Uh, They were able to bring in some strings later because Powell wanted to give it a cinematic quality. Uh, But yeah, he was brought on way late in the game after a complete original score had already been composed. Even more Lymania. <laughs> there you go. I, one thing I forgot to mention is that you know, the reshoots to reshoot the ending, um, they caught, another reason the studio wasn't happy was they cost the um, the film another additional $8 million, uh, or Well, not, not probably not just the reshoots, but just the entire chaotic production plus reshoots uh, made the film go $8 million over budget. Well, you know, that's not nothing. Uh, so... Ultimately, after all of this, the film was released uh, on June 14th, 2002. Okay, so I have a very long history with this series. Um, you, know, you, you know how growing up, your family will have like these staples, these films that you'll always go back to. And the Bourne series is one of those. Uh, we, we just watch them all the time. Um, and I've, you know, I've always liked it. I, I don't even remember the first time, my, my first time seeing them all. I remember my first introduction was actually through supremacy, and I'll talk about that later. But like they were still just they were just like a, a part of growing up, um, and kind of seminal films, you know, for me, and you know, and just I mean, honestly for film culture as a whole. But so yeah, I, I don't like really have a big story. It's just that they were always a part of my life growing up. Uh, it seemed a bit different for you. Yeah, it's so the the Bourne series is always something that I was like cognizant of. You know, it's, I mean, like you said, it was such a big entry point for, for, for a lot of people who are in action now. It's like, oh, I love it. I love action because of Bourne. Uh, It really changed the way action was done. It's funny, you know, Bond was supposed to kind of be the, the series that really tread the path for, for action films and then the whole series ended up adapting after it flopped and the Bourne series kind of became the new uh, benchmark. So it was always something I was very aware of, but I hadn't seen. I want, I might, I'm having trouble even remembering if we ended up finishing it. So I, I saw uh, the first Bourne movie maybe six or seven years ago. 
And rewatching it now, I question whether we even finished it because I remember like we ended up starting it at like one or two. So I don't know if I just fell asleep or if we stopped like that entire whatever happened was a blur. I just remember we had a friend over to watch it. And for some reason we didn't. We may not have finished it. Um, and when did Legacy come out? Legacy, I think, was 2012 or 2011. Okay. Okay. Then I so my my first exposure to the the series was actually legacy um i didn't 2012 uh okay 2012 yeah i i hadn't seen any of the born films yet and i think it was my dad and my brother and my cousin were all going like they just kind of had a guy's day and we're like oh let's go watch a movie and like the born series is like the ultimate hey like watch a movie with your dad kind of series so like well let's go watch the born legacy and i knew nothing about it so that movie like i I I didn't really understand most of like I understand the plot that was specific to it, but there were all sorts of you know references to stuff that I I was unaware of. So that was technically my introduction to the series. But like my my first viewing of the Born Identity, I remembered almost nothing about it. Um. So so yeah, my relationship with it has been kind of weird in that I've always been aware of it, but what I've seen, I just you know it, it didn't really take hold and in my memory uh, which is also why i was excited for doing this uh, to you know really get into a series that is so important in film history um all right so moving out of that i'm really interested to see your perspective on this you know coming coming into it in, in like now the era of film where the era of filmmaking seems to be in a, a, a direct backlash against the the born style with you know, john wicks and all that and the mission impossible series the way like it they feel like they're made kind of to be like anti the more chaotic quick cut style. So going back now and watching the, the film, that's one of the, or at least one of the films that started all of that. How, how does it work for you? Well, it's so my biggest fear going into this was the idea that, you know, I, you know, we're kind of, we're now facing the backlash with very clean, clear cut, like action choreography. But I feel like this is not in its infancy, but it's kind of, it's the new norm. And we we're just now kind of, out of what Bourne did to action films. You know, mm-hmm. like the last Taken movie wasn't that long ago. And that was like, that's the go-to example of this. This is what that and Casino Royale were like, this is what Bourne did. Th- this mm-hmm. is why these movies exist. Um, so even though we're tech, like, that's not necessarily all the rage anymore. It's still very present in films of the last few years. Uh, and so my fear was, I just, I see so much of this. Is it going to be one of those things where you go back and you watch the thing that did it first? And like, I I appreciate it, but it doesn't do much for me. Uh, and that actually wasn't the case here. I think it's because it's not just enough to like replicate a certain style, but it it's, it's ultimately all about execution. And so much of the execution of this style now feels very aimless. I think when we've talked about action films before, We'll talk about how a lot of times shaky cam feels like a crutch that people who like directors who aren't good with choreography and staging use to hide that fact. Um, but it shouldn't be, you know, you, you should still, if you, for the people on set, they should be watching something that feels choreographed with, you know, intention behind it. And that's what it felt like here. Like the action felt like there was intention. Mm-hmm. And I think also from the clips I've seen, this is probably the least like shaky of them all. So so for me, like I 
I didn't really, there was no like, okay, so this is what it is. Like, I guess I'll just have to kind of get used to this. I I just ended up really enjoying the action from the get-go. It's interesting. So you have like Saving Private Ryan, which kind of employed a very, I think would probably be one of the closer comparisons of that time period. To this I, I think the the big pioneers of the style you have like your tony scott's your um or the shaky camps you know shaky cam quick cuts your tony scott's uh michael bay and paul greengrass but each one of those three guys like the term auteur isn't the term because that, that usually refers to people who also write their own films i believe um like the, the, you know they're, they're artists with each one has their own clear visual style like, this is what they do and they they all all three of them i think do it well um Whereas with I think with the Jason the Born or without the Born Identity, every the way this film is, it's not really it's not like Doug Lyman. This is Doug Lyman's style. It's just a very stripped back and basic. And also, I think the the three guys I mentioned, they're all almost they do it in a way that feels stylized. And like, this is a, a intentional visual style that has its own you know you know quirks to it. Whereas I feel like with Born Identity. It's almost like an anti-style. Like there is, there is a film that is so stripped of any kind of visual flair, and it was just the, looking at the, the color grading is so drab and gray. The way he shoots locations, like we're used to, you know, in Bond films or other other spy movies, when we go to Europe, it's all these like hel- gorgeous helicopter shots of the landmarks, and everything is so pristine. And even even in the Cold War films, it's all very austere and gray and concrete. But here. He really gets us down into the streets and like you you feel the cold and the snow and you feel like you can smell the fish. Like he puts you like into the very kind of grungy depths of of these locations in a way that just feels so, you know, grounded and realistic. Um and just the way he shoots it, it's not it's not I wouldn't call it shaky cam because the camera isn't really shaking. I think it's mainly just a constant moving steady cam with a lot of quick cuts. And a total disregard for like a 180 line. The thing I know is he just jumps over the 180 line. He'll just shoot from any angle he wants to, and it gives it a sense of chaos. But I, I and that's the fascinating thing about this style. Like there are directors that can do it. I think Greengrass can do it. Um, J.J. Abrams can do it, and you know make a shake, quick cut, shake cam style look good. But so often it just looks terrible. It just looks lazy. Like they don't know what they're doing. But and it, it's so hard to point out the difference between like this person knows what they're doing. Usually, I, when I say someone knows what they're doing, it's like a J.J. Abrams or like a West Ball, where yes, it's shaky cam, but I also feel like they had that storyboarded out and they knew exactly what they were doing, and it all cuts together seamlessly. And but it doesn't feel like that here. This feels very loose, very spur of the moment. Like like if it feels like what you would get from what I described of you know Lyman's style previously. And yet, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me, and it, which I, I I don't entirely know why this time it doesn't bother me. I think it works well together, but it just does. It just fits together. It all edits together so so well, and it gives the film this sense of realism and momentum and energy that is just so watchable. Yeah, there's there's something about going back to what you were saying about the locations. Something that felt kind of immediately noticeable to me was watching this. I'm like this. Why does Paris feel different here than it has in other movies? And it, I feel like it is because we just see it through such a different lens. Like, like, like what you were saying, like the camera, we're not, we're not really going to like God's eye view shots. We're not getting these huge, 
there there are a few moments. There's shots, and I I'm a sucker for these shots. Whenever we cut to like like the CIA or watch just whenever we cut to the politicians and we've got these nice wide you know uh, establishing shots of all of these famous monuments and stuff and it just you kind of have the little typed out cia headquarters blah 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 whatever Mm -hmm. i i I love stuff like that but outside of that like especially when we're just in Bourne's perspective it's like the camera is on the ground the camera is in the street it's over his shoulder in the apartment we're not you know we're not seeing anything that he wouldn't see typically and what's more than that because the film also just has a very specific tone and atmosphere uh it also informs the way we're looking at it. like we could put a lot of these visu- visuals in a, in the context of a different film and maybe they it would look different maybe we're like we're more intentionally noticing the scenery and, and this and that but the movie does such a good job of like grounding us in his pov that we feel almost as a, like as confused as he does that it just everything else feels peripheral to like the mission, like I've got to go, I've got to go here and do this. I've got to go and do this. I don't know who I, I don't know where any of this is. Like you, you kind of feel lost in the same way that he feels lost. And speaking of the atmosphere, and I'm, I'm sure we'll end up getting to it, but this film sets the t- like just a tone and atmosphere so well in its first sequence. And, and maybe the reason this style works so well is is the tone is so consistent and grounded. Up until he's like jumping off, you know, down stairwells on bodies. Like up until that happens, I think the, the tone is set and perfectly maintained. Like he never does anything that a human couldn't do. Which uh, and I'll go to that later. But maybe when a more fantastic film tries to use the shake, I'm thinking like a like Clash of the Titans and Wrath of the Titans, especially Wrath of the Titans, where it's shot. It's shot like a Bourne film, and it it drives me bonkers. Is this massive, you know, film with you know gods and titans smashing things and and fighting? It's all like, huge. It should be like crazy and stylized and fun, but it's for some reason it's shot like a Bourne film. And, and so I think when a film gets more, the more crazy a film gets, the more inexcusable going into a really grounded, realistic style feels. Whereas here. The whole movie is so grounded and realistic. It, it, it's it's like the native. It feels native. I think, and it's and just branching out of that, just in the whole the 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 realism of this film. I think, and it's it's not it's not unique. Every man heroes weren't unique at this time. I think like you know this. There's a whole series of films that starring Harrison Ford in the '90s. You know, Air Force One, The Fugitive. Uh, the Jack Ryan films where he plays a very normal guy thrown in very similar situations. And like, so, and they're all, well, air force one, maybe not so much, but like they're, they're grounded films. Just so everyone's clear. That's not a knock against air force one. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Um, but like, he's a fairly grounded character though. Like what he does with him, you know, himself and his body. I, I'm trying like, what, what do you think is the difference between this film and like the Jack Ryan? Have you seen the Jack, the Harrison Ford Jack Ryan films? Uh, or, or the future you, you know the that, that kind of 90s yeah. film i'm talking about you're talking about like dad the, the, action hero harrison Ford. yeah the, the 90s dad action you know grounded action movies in the 90s like yeah what do you what, what do you think it is that sets this film what what what, what how is born so exciting and refreshing when grounded realistic action films quote unquote was already kind of a thing in the 90s i think part of it really is born as a character and uh matt damon's like portrayal of him because 
what grabbed me most immediately with this, especially, and just, so just going to that opening scene, which I talked about, I, I, the, the tone that sets right at the beginning, it creates this kind of intrigue. It robs us, or not robs us, it just, it doesn't give us any sort of information. There's, there's nothing that we know. And so we, we see the bullet wounds. We, we see the, the hip bank account, like all of these crazy things. And, and we don't, immediately cut away you know he's on the boat for a bit we see him in he's he's helping the the fishermen we're kind of establishing the fact that we we don't know what's going on and i think what just feels so different and unique about this is there's almost a participatory feel that you have with born as the movie goes on like there are there are these moments where you know he's speaking languages like i i don't know why i know that I could, like, I don't know how I can speak this, but I just can. And some of my favorite moments early on are those little moments of realization you see in him when he's like, I know exactly how to take these guys out immediately. And you just see it happen. And so I think, I think a lot of it is there, there's definitely intrigue in those other films. I, I really love Jack Ryan stuff. There's, there's intrigue there, but we're, we're always, I don't know. We're always in the, a lot of time we're in the know and we're very much like we're working with everybody. We have this command center that we are working with and we understand why we're going after who we're going after. But this movie just drapes itself in mystery and intrigue and robs every bit of knowledge from its lead. So even when we're kind of doing actiony things, it still feels like you never lose that sense of mystery of like what's what's around the next scene what what are we going to what's going what's going to happen like even our lead doesn't know what to anticipate mm-hmm. and uh, interestingly that that's the something i noticed in this re- is this recent watching is just how little mystery there actually is like it, like he doesn't know what's going on he's constantly asking questions constantly searching but pretty much like the second scene in the movie tells us that he's a government agent who is on a mission to assassinate someone like it's it's funny how it's it's it grounds us so well in Bourne's pov of confusion and you know the desperate need to know while also letting the audience in on the secret i I, it's interesting how it balances both sides yeah speaking of that that's something that i think sometimes works against the film's favor uh and i I might I might just need to rewatch it and see if it's just kind of an expectation that I unfairly placed it on the film because I was surprised when we found out who he was and what his mission was so early on. You know, we've got several scenes of dialogue just between Brian Cox and Chris Cooper where they're like, oh, well, I tried to do this and he failed and we're trying to get him back. And, you know, we've got these agents and this and that. I'm like, oh. But I know it's all about him trying to discover his identity. So I think, like, I took all of that information at face value. But the the film, especially from Bourne's perspective, it still shot itself like this mystery intrigue thriller. You know, it still, it, it carried, it, it wore the clothes of a movie with a big reveal at the end. And so mm-hmm. I feel like I took that as there's something they're not telling us. There's something just around the corner um, because it is still very much carrying itself 
in that kind of vein. So I think that's that's part of why uh, one of my issues is I was both intrigued and not 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 intrigued, but like and not bored. And all the words I'm looking for are maybe carry a bit too much negative connotation. But like I was intrigued in where we were going. But I was sometimes wondering like why I'm intrigued or what I'm intrigued. And I'm like, this is interesting and I'm this is cool, but what do I not know? The movie's treating me like I don't know things, but I'm so I was constantly waiting for this reveal, but I didn't know what to be anticipating because, you know, his his identity is revealed so early, so I'm like, I I'm excited, I'm ready to be like, oh, this is it. But in other movies, whether it's it's Ray's identity, it's his identity, it's it's anybody, like, you kinda know the thing. You kind of you know the question that you're waiting for the answer for, and here I felt like my body was tense. Like I was like, okay, I'm waiting for something. The movie's telling me I'm waiting for something, and then you get the last confrontation with Chris Cooper. I'm like, okay, so we were what we were waiting for was born to catch up to us, I guess. So that well, that, all, that that and the the final reveal of what happened on the boat and why. Like that's the main final reveal. And as you know. As a reveal, I have mixed feelings on it because it almost feels more like a a bone thrown to the audience to be like, you're right to root for this guy, he's got a good heart. It felt maybe a little weird in the moment that Chris Cooper is just dumping all of this info to the guy. I, I don't know, maybe it does work. I, I love actually I love how that scene plays I'll, I'll probably talk about it later, but I love how that scene plays out. I do I do agree that it doesn't. It doesn't take the shape of how this film normally would, and there would be a massive. Oh, this is who you really are. You're something. You know? And I kind of like that. I think it, it sticks to its you know grounded quote unquote realistic roots, and you know it, it never, it never, it never really goes into cliche on that front. I think. I I think, and I don't know. Maybe you. Maybe if it were to be reshot and edited like this, it turns out it wouldn't work as well. But I almost wonder. If, if what was going on with Wambasi was more of like this very backgroundish thing, like new, like just maybe we catch the tail end of different conversations. We always feel like there's there's some sort of external conversation that we're not privy to. We see clips of it on the news in the background. Just some way to kind of like plant the idea of some sort of political, um, you know, controversy happening just like outside of the frame constantly and then be like this thing that's kind of been on your mind is actually the whole like that was the point but it just feels like they played their hand so well so yeah yeah I, I i i guess i'm just thinking like you could you don't have to have it any less grounded in realism because that's maybe my favorite aspect of the film so you 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 keep playing with all the pieces that the movie already has you just you show the piece maybe later. Mm-hmm. And I think elements of that mild anticlimax at the end is the fact that it was, you know, being created on the fly. <laughs> you know, not everyone can be Chris McCory and do that. Um, although I, I got to respect the fact that it never lies to its audience. It plays completely straightforward. You know, everything he knows, we know, and everything the CIA knows, we know as well. You know, it does, there's never a moment where like, oh, well, like I, they, you should have told me that. And, you know, where it feels like they're hiding information for a fake reveal or something. I would agree. Like we're talking about the end of it. I do agree that there's a. 
a, a small price is paid for this type of realism, at least for me. Maybe not for the viewers, but for me, I love I love it for its realism. And like other films, say like a, a Roma, which is you know very different type of film. Like when you think of movies that are very going into maybe dramas as well, but films that are very realistic, they they there's the that film kind of film has its own pleasures, and there are types of you know satisfaction that you can only get from a very realistic movie. But at least for me personally, there's a ceiling for how much I will ever love a film like that. Like I will like them and respect them endlessly. But for me, to, for something to become one of my all-time favorites, you know, to get past like the four four star range, you got to be a bit more of a movie <laughs> for me. Like you know, do movie things, and the, the movie things are what 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 you know allow me to get you know so much more excited and emotionally invested just like into the all the magic of filmmaking so i i would agree that there's always just a slight feeling of anticlimax then even though i love this film and i you know respect the heck out of it there is it, it does sort it doesn't it doesn't give give the kind of crescendo i think that i that you're that a movie like this naturally leaves you wanting and i i just i wonder if if in this specific case that is a a necessary cost or if there was a way of preserving this film's style and sensibilities while also i don't know satisfying that that kind of cinematic expectation with an ending yeah i'm not sure uh so let's talk about matt damon um he's so he's so perfect in this role because he has this like really friendly boyish face and like you know, he he we we start off. He's so vulnerable. He doesn't know you know he doesn't he doesn't know who he is, and he's stuck in this strange situation. And the way Damon can do both really vulnerable and confused, and also even kind of dorky, like when he's interacting with Marie, and the instant anything happens, his face just die like closes off, and he is a machine. He has a mission, and he's doing it. And he will, and he will just execute his mission perfectly with total calm. And, and, but also, but it, it doesn't feel like they're two different people. Somehow he's able to join both the, the extreme vulnerability of the character with this absolute, you know, machine of a man, and it's so good. Yeah, and I think you know, when talking about what sets us apart, I think part of it comes from that vulnerability as well, because you know, we we definitely have had these everyman action heroes. Um, but I don't think that, that that level of vulnerability is usually something they play up there. Like mm-hmm. physical vulnerability, definitely. But the emotional vulnerability that Damon has here feels pretty unique to the movie. And some of my favorite parts are just sitting with him in this emotional turmoil in the quieter scenes. Like the scene of him being like, no, I, I haven't talked to anybody so please keep talking. My head, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's soothing. It's like, there's these quiet moments with the character, and I love. He's such a dork. Like he's really just like kind of a, a awkward little guy, guy, you know, awkward kid almost when he's you know trying to interact with people and you know not on a mission. You know, you you see, you see him kind of scared, and then he'll he'll smile the way he did. Like he's kind of got that very boyish almost mm-hmm. shy grin and it's like you you want to just help him. you feel sorry for him like ah oh, man this guy's got to find out who he is poor guy uh so yeah it's just he's 
immediately easy to root for. Yeah, and thinking about like like not going past the character, like what makes Born unique as an action hero? I think it's if I can pinpoint it, I think it's that he is the absolute best a human can be without ever well the films will occasionally break the loss of reality, like when he dives off the banister. But overall, like the films there's never a moment where you're like I don't believe a human body can do that. Like even when he like he just snaps out of it and just like beats up you know two or three guys in three seconds, he's always done. Or is a, anyway when he's in the on the embassy climbing around the walls, like he's always just this much better than everyone else and so awesome. But also, you feel like I could do that if I you know if I if I if I trade a little bit, I could I could do this. Well, it, it's it that balance of better than everyone else while also never never once you know, messing with the laws of reality, I think is what is that's, that's where Bourne lives. Like you know, your James Bond, or Ethan Hunts, they all, they, they go you know, into insanity all the time, but he, he's able to be, you know, the, the best of the best while also, you know, not going crazy. It's, it's a really interesting balance, I think. Yeah. And I think that's why I kind of, uh, share Alan's criticism of, of that ending. It's, it's a brief moment, but <laughs> I think what I really like about the action is so much of it feels so utilitarian where everything is, I it's what's the quickest way I can take care of this situation. Not going like full parkour, but it's like, I'm going to climb to the roof and try to leave. And then when that becomes, I, I love that that becomes like no longer really a viable option at that point. And he's, he's not like, oh, I'm going to jump and and glide down this wire and do this thing. It's, it's very, it's like, I love the scene of him climbing down that that uh, wall too. Very slow and methodical uh, mm-hmm. on the outside of the embassy. Um, like his, his superpower that, is that he never stops moving. Like he doesn't. Yeah. He never hesitates. Like that's, and he that, convinces that's, you that that's enough. That if you keep moving in a direction, that's that's what it takes to just keep them off your tail. And that's why that ending doesn't work for me because this guy. Who seems very, who seems so practical this entire film? You know, he comes off dual wielding the guns with one of them upside down. And, oh, I, uh, I like that. I like the dual wielding with the shooting with the pinky. That's cool. Uh, I'm. I don't outright dislike it, but it feels like just a little. It feels like a, a cherry on top of something that had like just a, a muffin with no icing, and then you put a cherry on top of it. That without the icing. Over the whole thing, that cherry feels out of place. Uh, is my weird Lyman kind of on the spot metaphor that I'd slap together. There needed to be icing to make that cherry believable. And because there was no icing, the cherry feels out of place. <laughs> uh, but like, it, I, it was a little bit comedic watching him just like bash the guy through the little, like the, the guardrail and you know, fly down, especially since the way they land, like they don't sacrifice realism and the way it looks, it looks like these bodies just drop from the ceiling and it had this like a ragdoll element to it. And then when he gets up, you're like this, this doesn't match up with what I just watched. Yeah. Like you see the way the first body lands and the way he lands on top of it and bounces off. It's like, that looks really brutal. they, They didn't go for style in the way that, that, that whole thing was shot with the exception of the one like the hero shot of him shooting the guy 
but outside of that, it felt very practical. So whenever it looks as practical as it does, and then he kind of gets up and walks away, I'm like, that doesn't feel right. Yeah, it feels like it's out of a different movie, different type of movie. And I think this is where the action shooting, I think the conversation becomes interesting because I think so with the backlash against this, the, the quick cut style, you know, people are like everything has to be smooth. It has to be wide shots. You have to be able to see everything. And, but I, I think with, as with pretty much every backlash ever, they kind of miss the forest for the trees and that, yes, this style has been so badly misused that it's kind of become hateful, but it came about for a reason because it has its uses. And like, remember the beach scene in Saving Private Ryan? That's the same style. You don't have that without this kind of cinematic style. And, and the, the, the only way you have to be able to see the action. And believe me, I love that as well. I, I love your wide, your clean wide shot action sequences. But I feel like here, not being able to see all the action is kind of the point. Like when he's in the park and the two cops and he just like he stands up and both of them are on the ground in about two seconds. I feel like it kind of puts the audience in the position of like if you were someone who was standing by, you know, I'd only saw that out of the corner. Like this guy is so crazy and is so fast that or or it puts you in the shoes of the guys getting beat up. Like by the time you realize you're actually in a fight, you're already on the ground knocked out. Um and I, I feel like like the fact that you are missing moves and not everything is in camera, I feel like is kind of the point. And it's all it's all just part of the energy and intensity and just like this guy is so good feeling that you that you're supposed to have. Yeah. Like I don't I, I don't think it would it wouldn't look the same if it was just a wide shot where we saw everything. Like it's it's you know, it's a trade off. But I think and it's not, in some films, I really wish they didn't make that trade off. But here, I think it's it's all just it's all of a piece with what this film is doing. And it's why I think the Bournes, it's it's effective. It's why this look became the norm for a decade is because it it's effective. And, and if you're going for realism, then this 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 really gives you that. I, so I guess the last thing in terms of uh, the film's tone and, and overall style that I really like, I like that the film plays it straight. We, we had conversations the day before, uh, maybe not the day, a few days ago, just about uh, sincerity in in certain films and something you know the idea of like a film being aware of itself and kind of winking at the audience it's not inherently bad uh, a lot of that is largely up to taste but I feel like because especially like somebody somebody like me who really loves horror I feel like horror is having a, a whole lot of we just we had a lot of several years of films aware of tropes and aware mm-hmm. of the genre and being very open about that and and you kind of get that in in a lot of different genres and action isn't an exception so you have a lot of like uh, a lot of kind of winking at the camera at the audience there's i've read i haven't seen tenet yet but i've read some reviews that <laughs> just really make me want to burn up the entire <laughs> i don't know film critic circles like that stop y'all are tenant being criticized for one of the quotes was like humorless uh, well yeah there's the humorless and then there's the uh while uh an end game has a twink carries itself through that whole film with a twinkle in its eye uh tenant never once considers the audience as a fellow member 
Uh, or it's just something like that. It's something weird of like, you're not acknowledging that this is a movie and it's ridiculous. Uh, and so, you know, when that's well done, that can be very engaging and very fun. But I, I miss it when movies play it straight, you know? Whenever a film, it's, whenever a film takes itself seriously and doesn't feel like it, there's the expression, hang your lantern on, on something, uh, which is to, you know, to acknowledge the trope so that you're almost guilt-free by doing it. Like, I know what I'm doing, therefore I have the right to do it. And so there's this constant kind of almost dialogue going on with the audience. And I like that this film doesn't really have it. It's just, I'm, I'm a movie. I'm playing it out like a movie. It's everything that you're having. I'm, I'm not going to apologize or explain. I feel like, oh, well, I'm doing this because this movie has this kind of thing. I have to do it. I know it's a trope, but I'm doing blah, blah, blah. It's, it's just, it's very up front and to the point and you know I, I don't know there's just that sense of confidence that this movie has that i i really liked a lot i feel like the problem with this conversation is that so often it becomes an either like you can't do boring action you gotta do john wick action or yeah. you know it can't be a, you don't want you can't be serious you gotta have some humor or other way around like, like oh my gosh marvel's horrible they make jokes so we're, we're too good for jokes and like i think both are awesome. Your scream is great, and your serious A twenty four horror films are. I don't watch them, but I hear they're great. <laughs> um, like the reasons movies are awesome is because you can do all these different genres. Yeah. You can go in all these different directions. So I think framing this conversation as like this is what it should be is is just ridiculous. Like yeah, cinema's and big, it, and it hurt. That's the thing because it it hurts everybody involved because a lot of time you you will develop more personal taste. And it's weird. I have movies that I, I absolutely love that are aware. And like anytime, you know, even in our conversation where I was talking about my own, the way I lean, you're like, well, I mean, you still have your Edgar Wrights and your James Gunn's. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, I really do love their stuff. And so it creates kind of a, I don't know, a, a it just facilitates a conversation or, or just an overall environment where because one thing is argued so much because i'm having to sift through these reviews of it should be more like marvel it should be more like this it almost makes you jaded we're like well actually i don't even like that thing it's like no it's not even that you don't like it it's just that we've allowed this like one thing to take maybe too much of a foothold that the people who might like the other thing subjectively more or like them both equally and just feel like they like the other thing more is just because they're being told that that thing is bad whenever it does happen. All that to say, I bet Tenet is great and everybody's just trying to have a bunch of dumb hot takes. It's really good. And it's actually, kind of, it has its jokes too. No one has a great dry wit. Um, we're about to, we're about to board. <laughs> um, and I, I think the, all the, the supporting characters, it's not a huge supporting cast, but they're, I think they're all pretty good. Um, Frank Potente, I don't know, that's what I'm to say, uh, as Marie. I like, uh, she, she feel, again, feels very real. She's like really messy and just kind of, uh, kind of you know, always looking a little uh, kind of the worst for wear. Just the way her kind of friendship and then relationship with, with uh, I've been watching Bond as well, so I keep trying to say Bond. Um, I just watched three Bond films over the weekend. <laughs> um, the way that relationship kind of plays out where it's, it's like both like it's forced to be really intimate while also 
the 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 fact that we don't really know each other is always kind of always there. So like like the scene where we're in the car and, she, and she's like, I've been ta- speed talking for sixty kilometers, and is uh, that that level of awkwardness I think is really fun to watch. And where they're in there, where they're uh, they're looking around his apartment and uh, she's just like pulling her boots off in the bathroom and talking about you're talking about no, there's no hot water while he's sneaking around with a knife, seeing if anyone's in there. Like it 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 just she adds like a really. I think a, a really necessary element of kind of human, very messy humanity to to Bourne's a very buttoned down, straight laced, focused um uh, persona. Yeah, again, th- this is an element where I think the realism also kind of plays out, where she kind of eventually is kind of shunted off, and she goes with um her her uh, stepbrother. So like she she like that character doesn't like they don't have to give her like an arc or anything like that, she, or at least I guess they sort of do, but not in a traditional way. It's all. Like she's there, she you know she she adds that element of personality for the film, and then kind of moves out as they move into the climax, where she's just like he would like in any other movie, she would be kind of become part of the team and be like the guy in the chair or something for the climax. But really, you know, no, she's just a normal person. He, Bourne is not going to take her on his mission to invade the CIA. I don't even know where I I have no I had no idea where I was going when I started talking about her, but uh, yeah, I like her. <laughs> Yeah, so I like her a lot too, and I think one of the things that I really love that they did with her is that she doesn't feel like the obligatory. We've got to give him somebody to kiss, you know. Like what what she represents in the film, and you kind of spoke to this is the idea she's she's a necessary presence in the film to draw out his humanity. He he needed somebody to. You know, be, he you know he says like I, uh, you know how could I forget you? You're you're the only person I know. Like he needed somebody. And he to, says it with these big puppy dog eyes. I, so I sincere. And that little grin. You just want to hug him. Uh, and you know that's going back to what we were talking about. Like part of why he as a character works so well is that vulnerability. Well, you need somebody to be vulnerable too. And mm-hmm. and I think part of why like part of what makes it work in terms of, you know, making her a female character is, you know, you, he would feel more vulnerable in front of this person. You know, he would feel, I don't know. It, it's a, their dynamic facilitates the, the kind of shyness in his character more than just like another, Oh, Hey, I'm just another like buff 30 year old dude. Let's become friends. You know, it's the, you know, kind of the awkwardness in their apartment and the slow kiss. Like you, you do, you feel like everything that she, that she's in this film. I'm putting this in a weird way. She, you know, she she's there to create that kind of shyness for him mm. to bounce off of. Um, and, but and, and, I, what I also and the like, type of the type of character that she is, who is seeming like her life has kind of been something of a disaster. Like it, it's believable that she could be you know, swept up into this and become, you know, join in on his mission to find himself. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel unrealistic when she, when she's going in and, you know, getting information from the hotel for him. Like, yeah, I was going to say, like, that's part of what feels so like smart about the way they wrote her characters. You know, you can't have a second person suffering from amnesia, but you can create a character with a backstory that does allow for what they do with these two characters. This person who does have, very little stability, very little grounding forces in their lives by way of relationship. You you do have almost this modern um, 
not nomad, but this this person who is kind of here and there borderline drifter. Doesn't someone call her a gypsy at some point? Uh, I think so. But that may like one of the Treadstone guys. Yeah. So so yeah, you you definitely you create somebody who could realistically fall in with what Bourne is doing. And something that I like as well with the end is that you know it's it's an you know he he saves the day he 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 wins and everything and he goes back and he finds the girl and blah 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 we've seen that a thousand times but here it doesn't feel like it's giving in to a trope it feels like it's arriving there organically because of like conversations exactly like the you know like how could I forget you? You're the only person I know. What makes that reunion feel so earned and organic? He could probably get together with Nikki. He's met her too, so he knows two girls. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like it, it makes sense that now, you know, he's trying to either reclaim or, or not reclaim, but create a, a new identity. He would return to the one single relationship that he's that he has any sort of investment and memory of. So like, yeah, it's, it's this kind of sweet, we're back together kind of ending, but it's still, it feels grounded in the characters in the plot. And also he's the one who, you know, gave her the stability, but you'll know, give her all that money, you know, allow her to have a fresh start and, and, a, you know, in a new place kind of, which, which is what she was looking for at the beginning of the film, trying to get a visa. She brings out like, like she, uh, she allows us to, us to see that the actual, the good man, the protector that he is, like when the assassin comes in into the apartment, and she, like like any normal person, she's kind of frozen and in shock. Like, you went out the window. Why did he? Why would he do that? And, you know, it's normal people would kind of freeze up. But so he, you has to, he has to you know take her and protect her, you know, in these various sequences, uh, and you know he's allowing us to see that side of him, and not just the kind of the hard edged assassin who's going to beat up anyone who gets in his way. <laughs> Though you have that great scene subverting the the whole little first you go in and you look to the left and well, I love that. Oh, I just went and asked for the. You just asked for it. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, like he he constantly has he has to go out of his way to protect another person. You know, not just otherwise. Like he would just move throughout this entire film without ever speaking to anyone. And so that that's actually a good segue back into something that I missed talking about his character. Um, something that I just was constantly aware of during this movie was he seems very altruistic. You know, he is very much, he's taking care of her. He very clearly... Unless you're a security guard, then you're just screwed. Yeah, that's, you know, throw you down the staircase and break your neck for all I care. Uh, but, you know, he's he is very careful with her. He's very kind to her. Uh, and clearly, like, you know, down to the last minute, like I took out 30 thousand but the rest is for you and she says you know is this it and he's like i'm, I'm sorry it's all i could like just <laughs> where his mind immediately goes and that so this whole time i'm like i understand that he's forgotten everything but he's still the same person that we're supposed to believe was this assassin so i don't know i was like i, I are they giving him an entire is it was this just like a factory reset on his personality um and so what I li- what I did like about the reveal was that the idea that he couldn't kill the man with his wife and kids present speaks to the fact that this is the same guy, you know. So this this altruistic person doesn't betray who 
who he was before. And this is this is like an old connection I only just made this viewing. Like it was set up earlier when he was uh, when they're at the the stepbrothers' house, and he like he went into the. It was just kind of like it's kind of creepy in a way, but he, he was kind of just standing guard over the children. Like he was afraid that someone would hurt them. Um, like he was, or and then when he thinks the assassins come, he kind of like snaps into protector mode, you know, making sure you know her stepbrother and the kids are will be safe. Kind of setting up for that final reveal. Like that is who he is naturally. Moving over to the kind of the treadstone side of the story, um, you just have two absolutely fabulous character actors in Chris Cooper and Brian Cox, um, and I they're so good together. This uh, Cox is like so condescending, and Cooper is like amazing and looking like uncomfortable and resentful, and and just their conversations where Cox is just like bearing down on him, and he's like making all the excuses, or just lying like he's a terror. He's a really terrible liar how on earth did he get this job is it just because he has no scruples i don't know (laughs) what Um, it almost reminded me of was a very stripped back grounded and realistic take on the dynamic between uh tarkin and krennic (laughs) of like the one guy who's very yeah he's just way more politically savvy and aware and the other guy who's just constantly in a place of proving himself like when he's trying like oh i think born went and killed Mombosi. yeah that, that that makes sense right he would do that wouldn't he <laughs> it's like it's so ridiculous <laughs> they're, they're like, like what um, what usually happens uh they're supposed to turn themselves in and, and he asked the other guy he's like is that what happens how long he's like uh 24 hours is is i guess the usual <laughs> like uh they're very clear. that other guy is I, I don't remember his name but he's really great as you know, put upon assistant. Yeah. I just like just how kind of grumpy and what a bad boss Conklin is. He's just yelling at everybody, but he's also, he's also kind of intelligent. He knows, he knows his job, but it's just the way he's constantly just put on edge and uncomfortable and just in the worst, having the worst day of his life for this entire movie is fun to watch. And just Cooper being uncomfortable is wonderful. Something that I also really liked about, the treadstone side of things was I get like we I mean I have no way of knowing what all of this realistically looks like obviously not treads not treadstone but just like what what this behind closed door stuff looks like and I kind of like that they didn't go sci-fi tech and stuff it's just like a bunch of guys at computers not even in like these elaborate kind of sets and stuff (laughs) it's just it looks like just closets tucked away in any government building is where this stuff is happening. Yeah. That that's something that has that always every time I come back and watch this movie, it kind of surprises me in that I don't know for me, whenever I think born, I think you you know the command center. Every spy movie has it. We have all the all the hundred or so techs, all you know, their desks and computers all facing towards this giant screen that's a wall, and then you have like the the the, the platform whereon the main villain paces back and forth and yells things and the and points at the screen and, and information exposition. Like every single spy movie has that, and you know, supremacy ultimatum, and all the all the the, the uh ensuing born films have it so i've always kind of connected with that so every time i come back to this like oh no there's just you know eight guys with these big you know these ancient box monitors in a closet that's treadstone and it's almost it's like it, it kind of throws me off but it's also kind of refreshing like if this was a movie about treadstone they would be the underdogs like there's this little you know, little known CIA program with overbearing, you know, overbearing bureaucratic bosses trying to shut them down as they desperately try to, you know, try to make things right. Like that, that that's what they feel like half the time. Like they're understaffed. 
they and like towards the end when they're going when they're closing down the Paris branch, like it's just it's 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 just Conklin and three French agents and Nikki. Like they don't have unlimited resources. There's always they, you know, when they're sending assassins, they're sending them one at a time. Whereas I feel like later on in the, both in the Bourne series and all of the spy films, like it feels like they have unlimited resources. Here they they are actually like. They are also threatened by Bourne. Like it's it's they're threatening him. He's he's a threat to them, and and it's actually feels like difficult. You know, you can't just you know call you know one eight hundred goons in Paris and have a hundred you know a hundred guns at your door. So towards the end, where he's like he's actually like himself feeding papers through the shredder as they're closing the bridge. Like it's it's so weirdly low tech considering like what the Bourne series become and and the rest of the the spy genre that it influenced it's so strange how how just how small and contained it is yeah that's that's something that i like right at the beginning where they're like it, with, with that initial briefing i think it's our very first scene on this side of the movie uh where they're like and of course like i i told them that you know nothing like this had occurred and there was absolutely no you know no attempt like this made on any one of our parts and you see all like just a, a handful of guys looking around and you want to like each one of these guys has their own secrets, has their own limited resources, has their own plans going on. And they leave this room and they all go to their own little closets and like they all have their own little bitty. They, fi- they find their own Conklins. Yeah. Like they, <laughs> to yell at. they all, I don't know. There's just because as we leave and Brian Cox goes and finds Conklin, he just walks into this room and like that's where this thing happens there. You know, it's. Fiction like this, it's not so much about what is in reality, you know, what is, what all of this would actually look like. It's about what can be bought as reality, what looks and feels realistic. And the idea that all of this is going on and Brian Cox gets out and he goes down and he walks down a couple of halls and he finds, uh, he, he finds his little closet and he goes in there and there's his own little tech team in there with their computer. Like it just, it feels realistic like my mind just sees that and says i believe that so i i really i like that aspect of it and also i love that they're all normal people like they're not they're not actors like it, it doesn't feel like they went and got like a half dozen like super pretty actors like they're all just like normal like walton goggins looking people <laughs> And like Nikki Parsons, where she's just like one person, you know, probably in, in Paris on a student ID, and she's running this one safe house by herself. And like even she is like kind of scared of the assassin. Like when she's when she meets the the guy in the middle of the night, and she's like, they, they all feel like just normal people, you know, probably fresh out of college, you know, as an you know doing a job as an analyst. So I say I loved how real she felt of just like I can't I can't do that. Like who you just they're all of their phone calls you kind of get the sense of desperation, especially since she feels so isolated over there. It's like I I'm, I'm more limited than you are. Speaking about uh Brian Cox, something that I love, and it's like it's the scene you're like, yeah, this this is why he's this is why he's not dead like Chris Cooper is. This is why he's <laughs> higher up. I love that little ending bit. I'm assuming Blackbriar is a little tease of what's to come, but I love that little moment of, oh, Treadstone, it, w- it was this thing that we decided was going to do this, and it... Now this is Blackbriar. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, just... You see him, you're like, oh, I believe you. This guy sounds convincing. It's like, it's this is the difference between he and, and Chris Cooper. And, like, the... Okay. The I, I'm just imagining Conklin in front of the Senate, and it's yeah, painful. I, 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 I can assure you that none of, none of this had happened. But... I, it's a, such a weird thing. It's literally like 20 to 30 seconds of the movie, but just like that, the way 
Brian Cox like waves it off with a wave of a hand. It's mm-hmm. like I, it, it's it's all but been defunct now. But Blackbriar, what we're doing here is, and it's it just feels I don't know the way he says it really worked for me. I'm like ah, this guy, he he worked his way to where he is. <laughs> yeah, another little t- it's like a li- it's a little thing that I love a lot from him is when after uh, Bourne kills Clive Owen and. He calls in and like like check in, check in, and he just walks over, presses the you know presses uh, speakerphone, and just gives Conklin a look like we, we all know what's going on. <laughs> this, this didn't happen. This is boring. Like it's all just like a, it's a silent moment, but I really love it from. Man, I love Brian Cox. And but 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 back to um, Chris Cooper. Uh, my favorite scene from is at the end when you know Bourne breaks into the into the uh, the safe house. And he has he has um, Conklin at gunpoint, but the moment Bourne has to ask a question, Conklin just kind of grows and takes over the scene. Like this man has oh. a gun in my face, but I am running this. I'm running the interrogation. I'm interrogating the guy with the gun in my face, and it's this incredible switch where he just completely owns it, and he he you know, he gets what he wants. You know, up until he makes Bourne unhappy and then he gets knocked out, but like. The way he's able to just slap the gun out of his face, and you, know, you just don't have a damn clue what you're talking about. Like he's, just, it's it's incredible. The the whole maneuver he does, where he turns the table on him, and he almost makes it. He he finds a way to almost make Bourne feel like he messed up. You know, like unacceptable. Yeah, like like you're I, I, make some question. Like, oh, was there some? Was there some? moment along this whole journey where had I just complied with something I would have just it would have been like you know they would have taken me back in and restarted like you know you get this sense that he's really planting that doubt in him where he's like you you don't understand you're jeopardizing all of this where he's he does feel in control like he's he would I don't know if he played it a little different at the end he could have convinced him like now and you just got to come back in for debriefing. You aren't none of this. We were never trying to kill you, kind of thing. You, yeah, you, you get the feeling that he he was actually close to to walking away, you know, in control of that situation. Hmm. Um. And I, I like that the, the way the way Born. I'm going back to the Matt uh, Born's character. Where like for the first half of the film, he's like really I I need to find out who I am, and every single thing he finds out about himself, he hates. Like by the time he does, I'm an assassin. Like I, I don't like who I was. I don't want to. I just want to walk away and not find anything else out. And I I just enjoy that the way it's like everything he f- discovers is just is horrible. Um, and there's that scene with um Clive Owen after he shoots him, and they're both in the field. It's like you know you get the headaches. And you know, got such terrible headaches, and I feel like a Clive Owen's character. I don't remember. I think he has a name, but he's, he's like he's referred to <clears throat> as the professor. He's also just a dude whose life has to be absolute loneliness, and now he has this moment with another person who understands, and he just like lets it all off his chest. You know, look at us. Look, look what they make you give, which is, I think is a great line. But it's like he's like. An, uh, yet you know another lost lonely dork who also kills people and he has this one moment to connect with another person who just killed him and he's gonna take it it's really sad it's especially sad because i'm like no he's the driver he's a good guy <laughs> but the, 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 the action scenes we haven't even talked about the action scenes all that much they're awesome uh, the the uh, the the apartment fight 
um, is just crazy. You know, it's that it's the quick cut, intense, you know, super intense style. But then the little touches they have, like when he picks up the pen, every time the guy hits, he like stabs him like twice with the pen. Uh, the pen in the hand is is kind of iconic. It's it just makes me incredibly uncomfortable to watch, but it's, it's amazing. Then the, the Paris chase, it's it's so good. Oh, uh, we haven't talked about a John Powell score. It's amazing. Just the, the the opening theme, um, when he's in the water, it's just this really sad, somber music, kind of the the born theme as we see the flashing lights, really puts you in the the, the mood of the mystery. Um, but also the, his action music, especially the, his the theme he has in the uh, the car chase is really excited. I feel like the music is like fifty percent of why these chase sequences work. It's like. What do you think? Like no, nothing terribly crazy is happening. All the, you know, the the crashes are pretty standard. Which again, you're going back to the reality, but it's just all edited together so well with with this propulsive music that you just gripping the side, you know, the, you know, the arms of your chair. Yeah, that was something that I also like in my mind was thinking as as the music first started kicking in. I was like, oh, I bet that I bet that this the music isn't going to age well because a lot of music from action films of this era, you can tell they're like, something got popular, and so everything was that. Bring thing. in the Limp Bizkit. <laughs> like, it's just that kind of like, oh, we're the cool new action genre. We're we're all young, cool people in black. And I don't know, it, it sounds immediately, like as soon as it becomes out of style, it ages it like right then and there. And so I really liked the the music here i i don't feel like it ever really showed its age too much um and even whenever it was kind of more of the era it it never went too full deep like the music kind of felt like uh, and i guess this is what lehman wanted um was it matched the film and tone and when you kind of strip something to to as basic as this was it kind of is impossible to age poorly so like this very mm-hmm. percussion heavy with those small moments of like kind of classical somber strings, like that's never going to not sound good. And then the Moby song at the end, I don't know, for me, like that, you know, the, the strings that come up or probably electronic, but it sounds like strings, you know, that, that the sound of the, the, the opening notes of that song and like the lines that go through the credits, like it's, that's like so quintessentially born to me. I think we've, you know, pretty well covered this film. Um, so let's move into our star rating and final thoughts. So, so James, uh, what do you give this film out of five stars? And uh, I was going to say, where do you rank it? But So what do you give this film out of five stars? Uh, so I go four stars. Uh, I really liked it. Um, I think I'm more emotionally invested in it than I, I am with a lot of these kinds of films because of just how much I like Damon as Bourne and how how immediately endearing he is as a character, how much you want to see him succeed, how how much you really like the dynamic he has with Marie. You, like, these are just people I like. And because they don't lean into the cliche, you know, you don't feel like, oh, I've seen this a dozen times. Like, no, I, no that's, that's Bourne, that's Marie, and that's their specific dynamic and is their specific journey. And uh, So yeah, I, I really like it. I like that it takes itself seriously. It plays it straight. It just tells... Uh, a small, cool spy thriller kind of story. The action's all really cool. I love the very snow-heavy atmosphere. It just it looks and feels cool. Though these kinds of spy thrillers, if you set them during like in snowy locations, it's it's just an automatic bump up in the score. It immediately looks cooler. 
So yeah, like there there are things that I I don't you know that I that I not the biggest fan of. I do think playing all of their cards so early on, while still presenting itself as if there's still like an air of intrigue over everything, kind of maybe I just like I said maybe on rewatch I'd be like oh that was kind of something that I was bringing to it, but it did. So I still I felt this feeling of. Am I like what am I supposed to be looking forward to? Like, where are we going? Like, I'm here for the long haul. I'm here for the ride. I'm liking this all, but what am I? What's the reveal that I'm waiting for? Because I feel like I know everything, and I do think that that mixed with you know like the the two guns and the jumping from the fifth store, like the climax doesn't completely work for me. With all that being said, like it's there's never the moment where I just feel like this is incredible that was one of the greatest things i've ever seen but it's just it's consistently very good from start to finish i think it's a very watchable movie i think that's like what Lyman kind of specializes at just movies that are incredibly entertaining to watch in the moment and i i, I think also there's a, a i don't none of them that i even though i like them all none of them really stand out in my mind as classics i maybe edge of tomorrow would be the best one i think of the lot but most of them are just like really good, entertaining times, like Mr. And Mrs. Smith, The Wall, American Made. Um, they're just they're fun movies that you, that don't. There's usually not like some heavy emotional impact to them, but they're really entertaining, and you know, that that's the case for me. I, I also give it four stars. I think you know it's it's kind of the quintessential spy movie of the early two thousands, but also I think as I said before that that realism kind of puts a cap on how much I can love it. But it's still it's it's so watchable, so entertaining, and like I think I I like that even within the rest of its series, it still stands kind of unique. Like Greengrass completely dominated the movies from here on out, and he has you know a very distinct style. This one, like even in the rest of the series, feels very low tech, very even more grounded. I feel it's almost like maybe like the Terminator, you know, with the first film, you know, is 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 a true classic in its own right, but then it kind of gets overshadowed by. Um, you know what that series became later on this film is kind of like that where it's every time i go back to it i almost got to readjust my expectations like oh yeah it's this kind of film it's not quite like what it became and so the the, what what, when people think of the born series i feel like they think mainly of you know the the two green grass entries later on but uh this one's really good too so going into the uh the reception and the box office uh uh so it was a pretty solid hit it earned uh 121 million domestically and 92 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 214 million on a 60 million dollar budget. Uh, it holds an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 68 on Metacritic. I think it's a series that's very well liked by critics, and it's interesting. I, I've, most action films, even the ones that are liked, aren't. I feel like aren't taken, aren't respected by critics. Um, like the Star Wars films, the the the, the MCU or most superhero films, they, they most of them get pretty decent reviews, but you, I feel like there's there's always a kind of a disconnect between like your real cinema and these you know, these popular films. I feel like like the Bourne series, uh, John Wick films, the Mission Impossible, Mad Max Fury Road. I feel like these these are like respected action films that are granted the title of cinema by the critics. Like it. it it, it feels like it has kind of been accepted in... You are a movie, but we have not granted you the rank of cinema. Yeah, I feel the, these ones, they, they are, they're, you know, they're loved by audiences and, and respected by... Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. There's that, 
because we know that this is something that we see because we've got the examples. You know, you've got the Fury Road. You've got, uh, I feel like Ghost Protocol and Fallout from Mission Impossible especially are the ones that, that people are like, oh, this, like, IndieWire included Fallout in its top 100 films of the decade. You know, like, there are those action movies that do, like, ah, oh, see, this is this is what, you know, this is whenever action reaches that that kind of level of filmmaking. What's interesting that I don't think this the Born series really fits that they're they're you know they're much more grounded. They don't they're not the the, the wild crazy blockbusters that critics like. You know, but I think that's what made it so special at that time, and it just kind of got grandfathered in. Yeah, it makes sense. But yeah, I feel, I feel like this is it's like its tree is like you know it's a, it's respected as a very first rate action thriller, um, which kind of seems to be the the consensus for the original trilogy. Um, I, I I don't feel like they're kind of all spoken of together. If you notice that the Bourne series, like you don't often hear someone like, oh, so you're talking about, unless they're criticizing you know the shaky cab and certain fights and supremacy, it feels like they're kind of all spoken of together. Yeah, it's weird. The Bourne identity, like if we're just talking titles alone, what's weird is I feel like people just name drop the Bourne identity more than most. Part of it might just be because. Like it's the, it's the title that stands out the most and maybe like the mm-hmm. most thematically it's a, you know, because it's the most related to the subject matter. Um, but what's, what's funny. And I guess we could just segue into like, just what this film's legacy is, is yeah, I do think this trilogy as just kind of so far having just been like a passive observer is spoken of kind of as if it's a, like just this single entity of of filmmaking so much so where i remember there was a a video that was critiquing action and uh and they were saying like there was being very respectful of the born series and they were saying you know whenever the born uh came on the scene it changed things forever but in the whole time they were they were just saying the born identity like the born identity came and changed this and the born identity looks like this they're like, to see what we mean, check out these two clips. And they showed, like, it was probably some one of the infamous scenes from Taken 2 or 3 or whatever. Uh, and they're like, and compare it to this. And it was from, like, the apartment fight from, is it the is ultimatum? Ultimatum. Like, yeah. And so this whole time we're talking about the Born Identity came and changed the landscape. And the Born Identity came and did this. And... But the, like, and they're saying the reason it can do that is because the born identity looks like this, and they're just showing clips from other entries in the series as if they are like the single unit. So yeah, talk, this film's legacy. You kind of talked about it with your uh, Terminator uh, comparison, where it's like people say identity, but it feels like there's this referral to the whole thing. And maybe even more so towards what came about. It's it hasn't lost any respect. You know, nobody's nobody's saying, "Oh, it was good," but the sequels improved on it. It's just some of the uniqueness of it might be lost, while none of the respect has been lost. And I'll be very interested to compare the styles, especially like especially filmmaking style between this one and the and the subsequent films because that Greengrass. He does a thing. <laughs> um, but I guess morphing that into the larger legacy of – it's interesting. Like I feel like we kind of conflate – like when we're talking about action filmmaking, you, know, you have 9-11 and, the, the, and the, the way that kind of pushed 
a more realistic terrorist based kind of action f- filmmaking. Um, you know, it was much more grounded, but this film was made before it was made before nine 11. Um, and so it kind of, it, it, it felt like it came out at just the right time as film, as you know, the nation was getting more serious and more somber. It was able to like, to take that, that aspect of action filmmaking and become, and in a way the, le- it, 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 it's, it's weird how to describe it. Like it, it, it created something. It kind of came at the right time. So like I don't think you have like a Batman Begins without Bourne. Like certainly not a Casino Royale, you know. Yeah, Casino Royale. Like, I feel like those two films are kind of they're coming in and you know taking that and running with it and, and are what you know changed the look of action filmmaking for so long. I mean, still a lot of action action films are using that this style. So it's it's just it's just interesting the way this film kind of and then well again we're saying this film but it, it's you know it, it's a process of over a couple of years because. We just had the Matrix, so you still had the, all the Matrix ripoffs as well, like all the early 2000s slow-mo stuff, but the board won out, it seems like. The fact that this style became so entrenched that we had to have the counter movement of the John Wicks coming in, and now that's, now that's what people love. It's just I, – I just find like the, the way filmmaking style evolves so fascinating. I don't know if I have much to say about it, but I, 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 what, what do you think is going to be the next – like where are we going to go after this? I feel like you have to wait until what's popular gets to the point almost of self-parody. You've got to wait until the genre becomes like a caricature of itself so you know what to counter, you know? Because the current John Wick style has, its, has strong weaknesses. I mean, you there's a reason not most action sequences aren't shot you know, in long, t- wide takes. Like, you eventually, if it's not done well it becomes, you know, slow and ponderous and you see all the facade kind of falling apart. Um, so like it's, it's going to become tired when lesser filmmakers use this style and it looks really boring and dull. So that's, we're, we're waiting on that. We're waiting on the lesser filmmakers. I feel like, uh, we need the taken sequels of this style to, to come in and show us what, Show us what this looks like when it doesn't work. So are we going to go back to what, like a John Woo kind of like more back to stylized slow-mo kind of uh, you know, swirling cameras? Or, like Ma- Matthew Vaughn's been doing that this whole time. He's just been doing his own thing with action throughout <laughs> all this. Completely oblivious to what everybody's doing. And somehow people still like him a lot. I, I, I don't, we, won't, we won't know until it happens, but I, what's, I really wonder what the next big thing will be. All right, um, so that was our review of The Born Identity. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating review. If you want to like us on Facebook, we are, we are there as Franchise City Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at FranchisePod, and you can find all our other episodes at FranchiseFittyPodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, you can also find the both of us over on Facebook, at the Outer Room, a Star Wars group. A This is a Star Wars group where we love all things Star Wars and we talk about Star Wars uh, in a positive light and the things that we're, we like about it and that we're looking forward to uh, because, you know, we've got Mandalorian Season 2 next month and we've got, you know, all of the High Republic stuff going on. Just there's... This, it's, a, it's a nice place to escape a lot of the drama that surrounds the franchise, so... If you're still excited about everything going on, and there's a lot to be excited about for, uh, definitely join us over there. And I, I'm also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. 
I have a YouTube channel called Gridrio One where I put out uh, various uh, various videos. I just put out a uh, trailer mashup of the Last Jedi and the Snyder Cut Hallelujah teaser, which awesome teaser. Well, that was the Snyder Cut one. I think my my one's pretty decent too. But uh, yeah, I really like both of them. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so th- uh, that channel is called uh, Greenery One, and you can follow me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Um, so I'm I'm looking at my notes, and I have next week tab written down, and I'm feeling sad now. Not next week. Two weeks from now, uh, we will be talking about uh, the Born Supremacy, uh, the first of uh, Paul Greengrass's installments. And did he just do the the two extra here, or did he come back for? Uh, he did the he did ultimatum. Then Tony Gilroy took over for Legacy, and then he came back for uh, Jason Bourne, the one in 2016. Okay. Well, until next time, not week. Uh, we will see you in the sequel.